Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the albumreview.net podcast. I'm Greg Potters. Thanks to all you listeners out there for your interaction and feedback. Your feedback is much appreciated. And what does it do? Oh yeah, that's right. It helps me to always improve. In this episode, number 39, my guest is sports writer, music writer, and book author, Andy Fry. Andy is currently a sports writer for Forbes and has previously written for Rolling Stone, ESPN, the Chicago Tribune, and a bunch of other uh, publications. In this episode, Andy and I talk about his recent book, 90 Days in the 90s, which I read and love. Um, In addition to this, we're going to talk about his other sports writing and music writing career as well. Andy also hosts a regular podcast called Andy Fry's Sports Podcast, where he has hosted special guests such as Tom Brady, Venus Williams, Rory McIlroy, Shaquille O'Neal, and a bunch of others. So check it out. In relation to albumreview.net, Andy also has an affinity for music, especially music from the 90s. And if you've heard my previous podcast episodes and reviews on uh, the single soundtrack, Rage Against the Machine's first album, Alice in Chains, or Smashing Pumpkins, you're already aware of my love for music from this decade. So this will fall right in line. Before we kick in, remember, you can read my reviews and listen to any of my podcast episodes by going to albumreview.net. These episodes can also be heard wherever podcasts are available. Please follow my podcast on your preferred platform so that you can get regular updates on new episodes. Also, if you guys would be so kind as to pop a quick review or rate the podcast, this only takes a second. That helps me move the needle and get the word out there. In addition to listening to these episodes, you can read over 45 written reviews at albumreview.net. Let's see, let's say your headphones aren't working for some reason. Well, you can read these too. And you can pick up some merchandise at the website from your favorite bands, such as trucker hats, t-shirts, several of your favorite albums, home sound systems, and books that I've read that I highly recommend. This has been something I've been really getting into lately. Uh, The bookstore at albumreview.net includes a bunch of books. One of them is one of my favorites, The 4-Hour Workweek. Another one is The War of Art, which is a Stephen Pressfield masterpiece. And there's other books uh, from authors that I've had on the show. Um, In addition to uh, Andy, uh, books from Brian O'Connor, Kyle Hegarty, and Ivan Bodley. They're all, listen, I I wouldn't have them on the podcast if I didn't think that they were incredible and amazing and really interesting. So go check them out at the bookstore. You can also find several biographies in the bookstore at albumreview.net on artists such as Tom Petty, Motley Crue, Alice in Chains, Metallica, Rush, Pink Floyd, Faith No More, Aerosmith, and a ton others. New to albumreview.net, it's not so new anymore, it's maybe a couple months now, but I'm really excited about this addition to albumreview.net is the tools and resources page. I'm grateful to have some sponsors now on the podcast, as you may have heard from previous episodes. And so in connection to this, I've created the tools and resources page. And this is a, this is a list of the tools and resources I recommend to you guys to help you achieve your goals. Uh, this isn't just one product to one specific goal, but really a library of products to help you. Um, some of these products do have an affiliate tied to them. Some of these are just helpful articles, books, and information that I want to share because they've motivated me in my uh, pursue and career as a entrepreneur. Um, so check them out, tools and resources page at albumreview.net and enjoy. 
Okay, cool. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with me talking to Chicago-based music writer, sports writer, and author, Andy Fry. How have things been with you? Have been busy the last couple of weeks with just like book promotion and stuff? Yeah, it's a small publisher. So the promotion, you know, I get a little bit of help with promotion kind of with the literary press, but a lot of the stuff is me. So, yeah. for example, I'm, I've actually had sold a fair amount of books at uh, record, like used record stores. I've, I've got one or two where it's just like I come in every couple spot. Yeah, week, like every other week and i bring in like you know, they take three more which is you know not a lot but i figure the people uh like rattleback records is one of the places in andersonville chicago that's like it's, it's pretty much all vinyl and i don't i'm a huge music enthusiast but i don't have i don't have a old school record player so i don't buy vinyl yeah um but yeah i guess the kind of people who, who do would be interested you know i knew that music lovers who are roughly our age would be interested in yeah. Um, yeah. Normally I, I, I have a studio downstairs, but I've been told I can't go up and downstairs for uh, a couple months. So I okay. cleared out the family today and I'm actually uh, in my, my living room right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's a nice day here in Boston. So, um, yeah. so yeah. So for the listeners, uh, I've got uh, joining me today is sports writer, music writer, and, and book author, Andy Fry. Andy's uh, currently a sports writer for Forbes and uh, he's previously written for Rolling Stone, ESPN, and uh, several other publications. And today, Andy and I are gonna talk about a bunch of stuff, but first off, I, I wanted to, uh, at some point, I guess, dive into his, uh, his book that he published recently, 90 Days in the 90s, uh, in addition to other sports writing, talk about his music writing career as well. Andy also hosts a regular podcast that I've been getting into the last couple of weeks called Andy Fry's Sports Podcast. And on there, he has guests uh, such as Tom Brady, uh, Venus Williams, Rory McIlroy, Shaquille O'Neal, and several others. So I suggest everybody go check him out as well. So yeah, Andy, again, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me today, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Greg, for having me on to yeah. talk about music with you. Absolutely, man. I'm looking forward to this. This has been the highlight. As I mentioned to you, I'm down and out with a, a broken leg. You know, this has been the, the highlight of my week for sure. Just, you know, thinking about this and prepping for it and taking some notes and stuff. So um, so you're from, you're originally from Chicago, born and raised, and you live there now, correct? No, actually, no. Well, I've lived here more than half my life. I actually grew up in the Philadelphia area. I moved here in 1994. So the fact that I've lived here for more than half my life probably tells you how old I am. I'm, I just turned 50 in April. So, but, you know, when you, I've always lived in the city. And the thing is when you... I think when you live in a major city, you know, for I think the first thing, especially when I, I was like 22 at the time, when you're like rubbing nickels together and, totally. you know, a, a, a lavish dinner is a, a quesadilla with your ramen noodles. Yeah. And just trying to make it, uh, one of the things you do is, I think at first, if you grew up in the suburbs in the 80s, like I did, you're kind of bewildered with the size of a big city. Like Chicago is, is a lot more livable and accessible than New York City. And you don't have to drive. You don't have to drive around to it like Los Angeles necessarily. Right. Uh, the subways and buses don't close in a lot of neighborhoods at like seven or eight p.m. on weeknights, like in London. So, you know, it kind of gives you the the if you're adventurous at all, you kind of say, you know, I need to get out there and like check out the city. Stop being such a wimp. Like, well, I'm gonna sure. check out this neighborhood, check out this venue, try this restaurant, 
oh, somebody said I need to go to this this uh, edgy neighborhood that has the best tacos in the city. I'm going to do that. And there's a lot of sort of adventure tourism that you have when you are getting accustomed to a major city being a new person in it. So, yeah, I wasn't born here. I didn't grow up here. I still kind of poke fun of the Chicago accent and Chicagoism <laughs> and stuff. Yeah, as you can probably hear, uh, the, the fire brigade is, is out, outside my window making uh, noises with the trucks right now. But you get used to it and you, you, learn, you learn to love it and you become a local, I guess is what I would say. I think Chicago, Philly, and Boston have three of the best accents that I love to, you know, whenever I'm in in the presence of somebody from, you know, either of those regions of the country, I'm always obsessed with trying to guess, you know, what part they're from, right? So to yeah. me, Chicago, the Chicago accent sticks out a lot. Boston, I mean, I don't even, like, I hear that and I'm immediately like, okay, I know that. Yeah. Philly, sometimes I meet people from Western Pennsylvania and then people from North Jersey or South Jersey and get that accent mixed in there too. I think those are the three, three of the greatest accents um, mm -hmm. and, uh, I'd love to, I'd love to do a study on kind of, I think where these accents originated from, I'm, I'm of the belief that at least Boston came from, it must've come from the UK because when you hear people talk in, in a British accent, a lot of times they will also drop their R's Yeah, and we're obviously famous for doing that as well. So, so you moved to, you moved to Chicago in the the nineties, you said, right? 94. Yep. All yeah. 90. So. Tell me about like, what was your life like growing up, Andy? And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested to find out, you know, I guess to, to get a little bit more specific, like when did you kind of start to get the writing bug? When did you feel like you maybe wanted to pursue writing as a career? Well, there's two parts. So, um, I mean, as an adult, I didn't really do it professionally until about 2000, well, really till 2011. I, I think back when we all got on social media in 2009, I don't know if you remember a few, uh, if you were on Facebook, if you remember, there, there used to be these, these things called notes where you would, you know, like write about me, 15 things about me, and you would write. Tag, tag your friends and annoy the hell out of them, and you'd write things. So people started doing those, and I would start doing them about, like, a sporting event or a moment in sports, and I would, like, I would tag people who either were there with me at it, or it was like an SEC game, or, some, you know, some moment in, you know, Philadelphia or Chicago sports history something. I started doing that, and I had a couple people say, you know, you write pretty well, maybe you should consider a doing a blog and um, you know, blog was kind of a new concept in 2009. So totally. I think I did that in part just to kind of, I was working in the corporate America. I was selling financial products like investments, insurance, um, you know, doing all kinds of like, I liked the adventure of selling and closing business, but there's a lot of busy work, busy work. And I think just to keep myself sane, sure. I started writing this blog on just like, I pick a topic a week and do it. And then it was, you know, maybe more like twice a week after a while. And I made a goal, um, I think in, in 2010, I figured like if I could write, just get something published with the local paper or, you know, I don't know, ESPN or CBS Sports or who knows what, you know, in the next five years, that'd be a pretty good goal. And I blew through that goal probably about within about 18 months because I published my first ESPN. You know, it's more of a stub than an article back in July of 2011. Okay. Remember that day it, I was going to the Cubs Phillies game with, with a guy that I know here who had done some writing for MLB.com and I was on a sport called fistball, which is kind of like, uh, I was right. So it was for page two. If you remember ESPN, I page. do. I do remember page two. I was a avid page two fan. For yeah. It was, it's, you know, it's a lot of weird stuff in extreme sports. And then totally. also like the video clip of the kid making the, you know, the half court shot that he makes and it wins the national champion or the, like the right. state champion in high school. So it was that kind of stuff. It was quirky stuff. It was 
not, you know, baseball, football, hockey, NBA, because they have staffers who cover that. Right. So I just pitched, um, I, I, I made a contact there sort of inadvertently and then started pitching some stories. And a lot of times it was no, no, thank you. We got that cover. We did that a year ago. Right. So I just found something that was like a legitimate sport with the World Cup. But the U.S. U.S.'s fistball team was based in Wisconsin uh, to kind of give you a highlight. Like it was like middle aged middle, like 30 something guys. I'm talking to the captain who's smoking a cigarette at halftime while I'm talking about preparing for the World Cup. So this is a little bit on the edge of your side, pretty much right up page two's alley. Right. Yeah, I got that published like and uh, probably thought in the back of my mind, like I got published in ESPN. I'm probably never going to do that again. And later uncovered opportunity in Chicago where uh, somebody who was right. It was back when ESPN Chicago had a prep blog, uh, a guy named Scotty Powers, who I think writes it pretty much about the Blackhawks now. Okay. It, back in 2011 was looking for people to do like Southside Catholic league football, high school football, you know, 50 bucks a game. And I sent him an email and I suppose the only difference between me and another guy on the street was I had an article with an ESPN logo on it and my name under it, you know, byline as we call it. Right. And I said, yeah, I'll get you a game next week, you know, available on the weekends. And I was like, yeah, sure. Whatever you need. And, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I only want to write about the NFL. I only want to interview famous. Like I was, I would have written about um, chipmunk wrestling at the time. Right. Whatever, whatever, whatever it is. Needed. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know if there's chipmunk wrestling professionally. Probably. Yet. If you go somewhere on the internet, there probably is. I, I think animal rights people would definitely be against that. <laughs> yeah. I think it, would, it probably would not be hard to watch anyway. Right. Uh, yeah, so I just took my opportunities, but kind of backing into it, I, I suppose that I was always a writer. Uh, my first sports article ever, I guess, historically, if you're going you know, to the letter of it, was uh, in fourth grade. I remember the, the winter fourth grade, I, I must have snowed a lot because we had indoor recess all the time. Yeah. Uh, and we so the, all the boys and a couple of girls in the fourth grade at Blair Mill Elementary in suburban Philadelphia, started playing chess and it was like a craze. So wow. I wrote an article for the, for the student paper called chess champs about my friends playing chess and how competitive it, it, it got and who the best player was. And, you know, in college a couple of times when I wasn't being too lazy or, or focusing on, you know, like barely passing my classes, I would write a guest thing for the student paper at Miami university or, uh, you know, occasionally I think I tried to submit things to like the city papers here in Chicago and they never, they never took me up on it. But so the writing strain was always there. I did like a, a zine in the nineties, got to go to a couple of shows for free and review bands. Like n nobody, but my friends read it, but I guess the impetus to be a writer was there. I just had to kind of find a way to do it co consistently and coherently. And it took till the rise of social media and blogs in the middle, you know, the almost the 2010 to kind of find my way and, and make a, a side gig out of it and eventually i guess what you could say would be a career and and were your your parents or your family were they supportive of this like did they yeah. feed that goal or feed that uh you know that uh hobby or desire i th i think i mean probably in high school i was i wanted to i thought about majoring in communications or or mass media and yeah. you know back in the late 80s it was north carolina or missouri for print journalism it was syracuse for, for radio tv right these are all like out-of-state colleges that were expensive that I didn't probably have the grades to get into. I did get to the University of Georgia, but I didn't go. I, I think my parents and I thought it was good, it was too big of a university and I might like lose my way and fail out. So anyway, I kind of floundered through college just kind of doubt. I was actually, I will say, the only freshman DJ. I spent my freshman year at the University of Mississippi, an SEC school. Oh, wow. And I was the only freshman DJ. So it was like 
college football weekends, all the juniors and seniors wanted to party and tailgate. Yeah. And I got to like do a show on Saturdays, which was like right after <laughs> beat LSU. We beat Arkansas somehow. We beat everybody that we played that year in 1990, except for, I think, Aunt Auburn kicked our ass. And then Tennessee was really good back then. But I would, you know, lock the door to the studio at um, whatever hall it was in. So people wouldn't come in and I would get requests from like people partying after, right, after right, the game, right. an SEC game, which is kind of a big deal. I would just, huge, you know, wire, wire in the yeah. the AP broadcast, conclude it, play music after that. And so I got a taste of broadcast journalism, but I didn't really complete a degree in that. I mean, I, I graduated college, but I think at the time it was, well, you're going to make $4,000 a year working, you know, the, the the farm show out in Nebraska. Is that really what you want to do? Or you don't know anybody. You're not a Rockefeller. Right. You're not, uh, you know, you, my favorite uh, sports journalist was Dick Schapp. I was yeah. related to Dick Schapp. So Jeremy's it's like, dad, right? you got to get a real job and and do like, you know, you make. So it's funny because I, I, there's a time in the late to the middle 2010s. Actually, I got my last corporate job full time was in 2013. This kind of highlights it all. Uh, I was working for a currency uh, firm. I was selling currencies to like yacht brokers and machine makers and mostly selling pounds and euros and stuff yeah. to these international businesses. And I got fired from my last, fired to let go. I don't know what it was. On the last day of my best sales month ever in October of 2013. Wow. So that's not, you usually have a great sales month. You put in a couple, you know, like four or $8,000 trades selling euros a pounds. You don't get let go at the end of the month. but. Yeah. Small companies, middle-sized companies, sometimes things are political. And it was like, yeah. I kept getting opportunities to write for ESPN, but you know, I had fair success in sales and business and I couldn't keep a job there just because of the way the landscape was, even though the right. economy was good at the time. Right. So I just kind of took that as writing on the wall to like, okay, I obviously got to pay bills and I've got to do something that earns some money. Um, so I, I started to look for contract jobs and I got, you know, it took me about a year, but I was, you know, doing some contract editing and just kind of gig, more gig economy stuff and a couple jobs at a time, which is sort of what I have now. But it was a lot better than smiling and dialing in a cubicle totally. and yeah. pulling my hair out at the end of the day. And, you know, like <laughs> spending all this money on like dry cleaning suits and commuting right. account, right. all this stuff that yep. we're starting to forget about now that thanks to the pandemic that we, or we think about that we don't have to necessarily work that way. Uh, I was kind of an early adapter of that just because of, you know, the, the sort of political circumstances around my employment going from, you know, firm to firm, doing my best and kind of getting the boot. Yeah, yeah. The that... Writing was kind of the strain. I kept I kept doing it. And eventually, I can talk about this if you want, went from, you know, extreme sports articles and, you know, things you've never heard of to getting to interview people like Johnny Bench and uh, Megan Rapino, And that was sort of came out of, one or two articles and a lot of relationship building. Yeah, I want to dive into that in a in a couple of minutes. That's definitely one of the topics I wanted to to cover. So, um, but to to your point with, uh, you know, uh, moving out of uh, sort of the corporate world and starting to do your own thing. A lot of times it takes that type of experience, right? I, I have a similar path uh, where I just got to a point where I just was fed up and frustrated with my corporate job, and um, that's really what made mm -hmm. me start to, you know, kick this, kick this off. And it started with a blog and grew into a podcast. But, you know, a, a friend of mine said to me years ago, 
why don't you, you know, why don't you up the ante a little bit and start a podcast? And I remember laughing at him right away and thinking, dude, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. And he said, why, why is that? So he kind of pushed back on me. And I really, to this day, think if he hadn't done that, I don't know. So I'm wondering if, you know, it sounds like that you had a lot of friends and family that were kind of helping to motivate you to, to be like, hey, your writing's really good. You should keep keep doing this. Or or did you have no doubt whatsoever that this is what you wanted to do? And once you got that kind of that caught that bug, it was like, you know, once I get the chance, uh, I'm going to jump on it. And then you got that chance. But, you know, yeah. was that was the the was the support that you got, I guess that must've been extremely helpful for you yeah. um, and gave you a lot of confidence. Well, I think the drive always has to be there. I mean, I, I, whether you do a profession or not, if you're a writer, you're a writer, there shouldn't be, well, I want to be a writer. You know, like I, I always liken it to video games in that nobody starts playing video games because they heard that, you know, I don't know, Dan T, I'm probably dating myself, Dan TDM or Big Cheese or whoever made, right. you know, a million dollars a year doing it. They do it because they love video games yeah. and they're going to do it no matter what. And, you know, occasionally you hear about, um, like I got to interview Nade, Nade Shot um, maybe almost a year ago. And he was talking about just being a kid from suburban Chicago who, like he was bad at sports. He had a really good relationship with his brother and the one thing that they did together because his brother was like a super jock, like, you know, three-letter athlete was video games and he could actually like beat his brother in video games. And then I think you know, <laughs> right. came to the, he was in like eighth grade and there happened to be a competition that was in the Midwest and, you know, he got permission to skip school for a day to go do this thing. And it kind of grew from there, but you, you do it. He did video games because he loved video games. Uh, so I think writing has got to be the same way. Anything you do professionally, you know, or, or even anything you do because you love it, whether it's professional or not has to be for that. You can't say, Oh, you know, if, if, if only I could move to LA and someone would show me around the movie right. so that I could be a director. Like, no, you right. move your ass to LA. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we hear the stories about like, you know, bus boys flipping scripts under the, you know, the bathroom stall to the director who walked in the men's room or whatever. Uh, it doesn't have to all be that. I think one thing is discounted among creative people is building relationships. And okay. I was in sales for a long time, trying to talk to people and open up accounts and basically get people's money to, to do business with us they're not necessarily wanting to talk to me and everybody else picking up the phone calling them during the day sure but i found that very helpful when i was pitching articles in that yeah of course you got to be polite and assertive and professional but you know when i did i think the first major athlete i interviewed this, this is probably almost 10 years probably i got to interview with matt forte he's kind of a quiet guy um kind of you know he's got more of an understated sense of humor and that was a great opportunity. And I think from there, like some basically his publicists saw that and they're like emailing me like, hey, I got this thing. I'm doing work with this athlete on this. Would you be interested in writing an article? And at the, the time that was uh, Chicago Tribune had a, a daily tabloid, you know, basically sports and entertainment called uh, Red Eye. So I wrote it for Red Eye and I would do things kind of intermittently just on a rolling basis, depending on what what opportunities came up. Uh Kind of at the same time, I ended up writing for, for I was doing a little bit for ESPN. I kind of rolled off of ESPN, uh, did some things for Rolling Stone. But, you know, that you build relationships based on on one or two things. And, you know, when you when you interview someone like Matt Forte, I mean, he's not a Hall of Famer, but he was he was one of the bigger athletes in Chicago at the time. Sure. Yeah. Then I kind of perked up people's ears like, OK, this Andy Fry guy he's writing. He's interviewing professional athletes. Yeah. Kind of a fun quirk. Uh, let me, you know, I guess they said to themselves, let me put them in the database. I'll email them when I have something interesting. And I just kind of built up from there and, you know, the opportunity sort of multiplied, but you, I was always open to different things. It wasn't like, I only want to interview superstars. I only want to interview pro athletes. I mean, 
to this day, I interview and do Q and A's with athletes that you maybe never heard of. I just posted an article of like 30 minutes ago about Coco Ho, who is, uh, uh, she's 31 now, but she's kind of originally was the teen breakout surfer in the mid two thousands when she was like 14 years old, winning championships. And I could talk to my, uh, friends out in California, Hawaii, they may know her, they may not, you know, you right. gotta be hardcore into surfing to know, right. I mean, I know her, but you know, she's just as interesting as, you know, Tom Brady or Jenny Finch or, uh, you know, yeah. Anybody who excels at, at, at either a sport or, or anything, right? Whether they're a scientist or, you know, a, a, a botanist or whatever, you know, I'm yeah. I'm with you. I'm, I'm interested in learning what makes them tick and, you know, how they set goals and really more more honestly, what what keeps them motivated, right? So yeah. transitioning a little bit to, to music, as I've been reading and enjoying your book, you clearly have a great music background with a lot of your references. When do you remember falling in love with music? Like, was there one band or one particular song when you were a kid that you remember that just kind of just did it? I don't know, you know, there's, um, I will say so there in my, in my book, 90 Days in the 90s, the plot centers around uh, someone named Darby who, She's not me, but she, you know, we, we kind of share some likenesses in that we're both insomniacs. Uh, we both love music. We're a little bit of music Great stuff. main character. And so, you know, she moves back to Chicago after like right at the time that her career fails in New York and her fiance dumps her. Um, her uncle Martin dies and wills her to this record store. And, you know, it was like her favorite uncle that she lost touch with and she feels guilty about that. So there's all kinds of like personal themes. I think it's kind of a fun story and making it sound like it's a it's a, a downer from the front end. But um, I guess the idea for Uncle Martin, I, I originally had an idea like, okay, she's got to be in Chicago for a reason. She's I want something music related. Um, you know, they came up with a record store idea, and I, I thought about the fact that when I was in eighth grade, I had got an electric guitar for Christmas. I kind of made that shift from whatever else kids listen to to like I'm a Led Zeppelin fan. Right, right, yeah. To this I day, I will talk to people who are learning guitar, and so my you know my kid is 16, he's Gen Z. You know they're not learning guitar on the Black Keys or, you know even like Randy Carlisle, some of these great female artists. They're le- they're still learning to play and motivating themselves off of Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, maybe Bob Dylan if you're a folky person. Yep. I my kid is downstairs probably right now playing some Dinosaur Junior. The, kind of the elements are always the same. So I was learning Led Zeppelin and my aunt Martha, who's in Ohio, I think she heard about this. I didn't even ask for this. One day a box shows up and she recorded every vinyl Led Zeppelin album she had, which was basically Led Zeppelin one up to... Um, in through the outdoor, right? I think probably, yeah, album. or maybe, I, I think maybe up to Coda. present. Okay. Because uh, I remember I bought Coda on tape and I maybe I bought in through the outdoor on tape. But I mean, a good like six or seven albums yeah 
arrived in a box of tapes, you know, that wow. on Memorex. Then I got to listen to those and really, you know, at the time, like my, you know, everybody I think who was mid middle class in the 80s was kind of strapped for cash. I was cutting sure. grass and had a paper route that was probably failing. And I had a little bit of money to go buy, you know, tapes, which weren't as good as CDs or yeah, so that she kind of helped the process of me getting deeper cut into music. She probably knew that I, I met, maybe I mentioned that I like Zeppelin over my birthday. <laughs> my summer project of having to decide where I was going to learn more about music and from there kind of took off but you know I, I did some shift changes uh before high school I kind of you know, I, I still like that stuff I still like Def Leppard and um, I was never related to the hair metal thing but somewhere probably in about 10th 11th grade uh I got I, I had a, a couple of friends who this is a very east coast thing you have friends who have older brothers and sisters that go to college. Yep. And when they come back, they they look different. In the 80s, their hair wasn't, you know, part yep. of the middle ride. You know, they it was, you know, the, the, the girls had these straight bobs and the, the guys had maybe shorter hair and yep. they were just a little bit more natural. And it, it, I think it was the alternative music they were listening to on college radio. So yep. I remember this yep. dude named uh, Andy Newman. I, I was in, I think he, he probably got annoyed enough with me bugging the hell out of me. Like, come on, take me some of this, college music that your your brother is bringing home for you yeah and he gave me a tape that one side was Hooper's Husker Du's Candy Apple Gray and the other yeah. side was Kind of, I think uh, must have it was a Smiths compilation. I don't even remember which one it was, but it started out with "How Soon Is Now," and I pretty much ran that thing through my tape player, my my Walkman, like my fake Walkman that was my Sanyo or whatever. Right. The point to the tape was run out, and I had to actually go go buy new cassette tapes and, right, and right. start my own collection. So, yeah, got into we didn't even call it alternative music. I wasn't sure what it was called. It wasn't exactly punk music. It was just kind of college music in 1987 88 yeah yeah i think rem was like a, a good, yeah. good example of that right you know um uh, you're right it really it was kind of labeled as college music the word alternative really hadn't come around yet so uh my collection as well was pretty much like max l xl2 if i was lucky yeah. i got xl2 taped or dubbed 
uh, albums. And I remember getting the whole Led Zeppelin collection, Pink Floyd. Mm -hmm. And this was like, you know, I was a, I was a kid. So I was coming right off of like Michael Jackson, uh, right into that. And it, it, it shaped my life too. And the reason I asked is because I didn't, I didn't have an, an older, any older siblings. I have a a younger brother who I influenced. And to this day, he's like, dude, I always think of you when I hear this music, this music, this music. Did you say you had an older brother? No, I, I did not. But all my a lot of my friends that I hung out friends with, friends did, yeah, yeah. They had you know, basically brothers and sisters at That's... University of Delaware or Lehigh or right, right. maybe one or one. I at least listened to the Princeton radio station WPRB, right, so they could get it. You know, it was kind of wedged between the top forty countdown right. station right. and the right. one that the the station that was over the line in New Jersey that was great for three or four songs. Then they put Bon Jovi on. I'd be like, damn it, they, they, they did so well playing. Uh, you know, Tommy Conwell and the Young Rumblers or R.E.M. Uh, and then they then they play Bon Jovi or like Trickster or I don't know or right, right, White right. Lion or some crap like that. Actually, Cinderella was big where I yep. was because I grew up in Philadelphia. And Bon yep. Jovi's next hand picked, you know, uh, the one that was going to be bigger than Bon Jovi was Cinderella. And yep. Yep. I, I I think it's funny now that I watch old uh, episodes of Beavis and Butthead that they that I think there's at least two times that the the video for Cinderella comes up they make fun oh, of the they band. crap on them big time poof, yeah oh yeah hair. Yep. I mean, I don't know. Maybe those musicians in the band Cinderella—they were authentic and they meant it, but it wasn't what I would consider great music that was changing anything. And I, right. I you know, maybe was not as in it, it clued in and intelligent to know that, you know, like my local record store had Talking Heads, and that I could have just grabbed sure. that. Like I, I, we all get influenced from somebody. My my dad was born in 1943. He's a big. He, to this day, he's a big band guy. You know, he has like Tommy Dorsey records and Stan Kenton and all these other artists that I guess were big in the 50s. That I, my my younger brother, Matt, who's was in band, likes that, but he also likes like the cow punk that I like. So right. I think he, we all have like a, an outer limit, like an outer rim of our musical, like, what you know, our tastes or what can be where we can be turned to the dark side or where we have the ability to be influenced. I think mine's pretty wide, but I, to this day. I pay for my Spotify subscription. Uh, I still buy CDs, but I'm always like looking for. So do uh, I. Yeah, I'll give you an example before I, I'll shut up after this. But like, I love the Chicago band Veruca Salt. Um, yeah. They're mentioned in my my book, 90 Days in the 90s, because they're one of the 90s bands from Chicago. Sure. I recently found this band called Mama. It's uh, two girls and I think and a friend of theirs. They're from L.A. They're uh, and, and they sound like Veruca Salt to me and also like a lot of 90s bands. So they're coming to Chicago, I think September 17th at Sleeping Village. I have tickets already because I want to see this band because oh, nice. it's only like 13 bucks or 15 bucks to see them. Wow. So I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, this That's band like, you know, is Generation Z getting the 90s and yeah. it's showing up in their music. So I was pretty excited about that. But, you know, we've all got stories and I could go on for two hours. About, yeah, right, right. Yeah, me too. You know? yeah, me too. One of the things that I always want to dive into is as you were honing your music skills or or your listening skills and developing your influences, did you ever consider music kind of like an outlet, you know, for you? And, and what I mean by that is like, did you sort of immerse yourself in music growing up to kind of escape, so to speak? I think so. Um, you know, I, I had a, I never really became... A musician like I think I did the talent show in eighth grade, but I would never like joined a band. I think I probably would have been. Well, I wanted to be a, a rhythm guitarist. I never really kind of had the gumption or confidence to to be a lead guitarist. I think when you're when you're forming a band, just like if you're starting a you know a zine or a publication or you know I don't know like you're 
your beer softball team and your company, like you got to have a leader. And I was never like, Hey, let's form a band. Right. But for me, yeah, it was always sort of, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Influence, I guess me to, to write a little bit and to sort of, I, you know, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do growing sure. up, but I always knew that I wanted to live in a big city and maybe that's, you know, that's, that's one thing. Just like there's people who want to live in Southern California or Florida. Right. Or like, I think I know a guy from high school who moved up to Maine because he's that guy who wants to grow a beard and right, right, you know, right. work on boats and stuff like that. There's, yeah. I always wanted to live in a major city. I didn't know that I was going to pick Chicago when I was younger, but it wasn't going to be Tampa or, uh, you know, Akron. It had to be of a certain size because I wanted a city lifestyle and I've lived in the city my whole adult life. I think music it's kind of acted as a soundtrack there. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, maybe sort of down the road, I, you know, I wrote this book in part because I think as a writer, you want to see if you can actually, if you got it together enough to come up with a good idea for a book and then see it through and complete it. But yes. you know, I, I've written enough about sports. I could probably write a book about sports. I've dabbled a little bit. I've, I've thrown out some ideas out to agents and even put together book proposals, but Something was itching at me a couple of years ago to um, to write a book about the Chicago music scene. And I just kind of came up with this idea that it was I had had earlier uh, joked with a, a best friend of mine who uh, was also a writer that, you know, like, what if we time travel back in time and go see, you know, Jimi Hendrix last concert, Isla White, or if we could I think about that. Why, why, don't we, why don't we jump on? Why don't we do jump in a time machine and go see Nirvana's first show or whatever? Right. Eventually, I was like, well, maybe I could write a book about that. I could come up with time travel. I'm not, it's my book is actually idea, not man. sci-fi. I'm not a sci-fi guy. Right. That was kind of incidental to the story. But I thought that, you know, in real life, if you could time travel, I don't have any problems that I would need to fix. I don't know that I would try to prevent 9-11 or, I mean, maybe morally we all should try to time travel to prevent something bad from happening. But on a personal level, without feeling like I needed to do something or fix something or i kind of thought about yeah, what, what would i do i kind of i don't know go back to that restaurant that doesn't exist anymore that i loved right go see a couple totally. concerts and yeah it's more I, fun that way so. i think your character your main character darby really dives into sort of her history and going back to check out some of the things that she remembers and just has i don't yeah. want to give away too much she has experiences where she you know goes back to a lot of old places that she um uh, you know, both physically and mentally that she used to, uh, yeah. you know, visit all the time. And uh, it just, it, and there were so many references, Andy, that were, you know, hitting me, you know, even somebody growing up in the 70s and 80s in Boston mm -hmm. and not being as familiar with Chicago, but just, I mentioned the escape thing just because I can remember, I think I was, I was 12 years old and like it or not, I remember seeing Guns N' Roses on the television and something hit me. Uh, it, I think it was the attitude, although I never really got into leather, there was something about what they were wearing, um, something about their badass mentality, and it was really the first time that I had witnessed something like that, and all of a sudden there was this feeling that I couldn't quite explain, and I found myself like the next day in history class just thinking about them, and then I would move on to English class, and I would be thinking about them again, and I was like, I can't get this out of my head, and so to this day, I still go back and try to figure out what it was, and I, I just, I think it might have been, I think as a stress reliever when I was a kid, uh, I didn't have a, a fantastic upbringing, but look, I, 
I had a perfectly fine upbringing. I grew up in a nice town outside of Boston, supportive parents, loving supportive parents. But when times would get tough, really tough, um, I would escape to my room, put on my headphones and listen to music. And it was like, it, that was my, you know, crack cocaine or whatever. And that really, yeah. so I, I always ask that question of people. Back to you, um, as, a, as a writer, you were talking about a bunch of things. You, you worked at ESPN for, I, I, think, I think it was about six years, if I, yeah. if I learned it correctly. How cutthroat was that experience? Or I, you, you already talked a little bit about it, but you know, I was, a, like I said, I was a yeah. big, big page two fan in the early two, uh, 2000s. Pretty much my, my day job at a bank, I would, my lunch break, I would get on page two and just read the whole thing. What was that? What was that culture like, or that experience like at 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 ESPN? Well, I was I actually was not a staffer. I was a, I was a freelancer the whole time. But I was always surprised, um, and you may be surprised, how polite and professional everybody at ESPN always was. Yeah. And I, I think you know they've had some 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 problems with uh, you know certain. I, I think every major conglomerate has problems with like uh, you know uh, sexual harassment or culture. Yeah. 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 So, and I don't know that, you know, it's, I'm not going to go into it specifically. There's, there's certain things that I, I sort of wish based on what, like being an outsider, hearing that this person left and that they didn't handle it that well. Right. Um, I think there's, but, but my deals with ESPN is they were always like, you would think, yeah, they'd be a bunch of jerks and be really like they, I, I had to kind of work my way in there to be a, a freelancer and kind of continuously build relationships. But I was, you know, even when the answer was no, or like, I had um I had a, a an opportunity to cover this is again early days page two to cover the air guitar championships and I remember some of you involved who was involved with them, maybe the, maybe the promoter the owner was like oh yeah we're doing this thing also with ESPN LA and I think I emailed my editor I was like is that cool and they're like well no you're not doing it now because I didn't know this but Carrie Chow in LA was doing this project before I didn't know when you pitched me the article that. He was working on it so politely, you know, we're going to have you not do this now. So I lost, you know, this, this is when I early on trying to like get any next article in ESPN. It was gonna like a big blow, blow to like lose a deal, so to speak. But, you know, I didn't lash out at them. I think probably one of the worst things you could do is burn your bridges by getting angry about that. I just kind of oh, totally. had to take it. Um, but, you know, I got other, other opportunities because I just kept knocking on that door and kept pitching things that I knew would be in the ballpark of what they wanted. And I got to, yeah, my, my music writing was really just more a stint interviewing aging rock stars about their sports hankerings. And so I got yeah, to interview. The first one yeah. I did was Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins had, was starting a wrestling league in Chicago, which, um, you know, was like his little side project, I think, before he got the pumpkins back together to do uh, their album in 2013 or 14 called Oceania. Right. Uh, yeah. He, you know, I think he probably tried to get into WWE and maybe they said, no, thanks. I sort of formed his own thing. So he's a huge sports fan. And after I did that, I, you know, I thought, okay, well, it seems like there's a, maybe an appetite for this. Uh, around my birthday in 2000, 2012, I think it was, yeah, I was turning 40 and I was just like, hmm, wonder if it'd be a fun birthday present. Uh, Noel Gallagher left Oasis. He's got his own new band. He's doing some tours. Maybe I could interview him. Yeah. And it turned out, you know, he wanted to talk a ton about sports and they were interested in that article. And then I just did a couple of those. I did one or two for, for Rolling Stone. Like I got to interview Jerry Cantrell from Allison Chains when he was doing his uh, his fantasy football league, which is raising money for like, I think maybe Wounded Warriors or some some veteran related project. Yeah, just kind of kept doing that. And that was my uh, repertoire for a little bit while I was also doing other things and keeping my 
options open and you know, kind of listening to what else was out there. I've also interviewed, uh, I won't go through the whole list, but you've got a pretty pretty interesting list. Billie Jean King, Greg Norman, Tony Hawk. Uh, yeah. I just I just saw an amazing documentary about him. Uh, Annika Sorenstam, uh, who was at one point the female golfer in the world. Uh, uh, Johnny Bench, as you mentioned, Mia Hamm, uh, uh, Dr. J, uh, yeah. Dale, Dale Earnhardt Jr., uh, Chrissy Everett, um, yeah. Megan Rapino, if I'm pronouncing that right, I'm the, the yeah. soccer star, uh, yeah. David Robinson. What are, would have been some, I guess, if you had to kind of go back, what have been some of the more interesting interviews besides the ones that you mentioned already that you've conducted? They've all, I mean, not to give you a blanket answer, but they're all interesting. I mean, there's only been once or twice where I've had an athlete that's kind of not really answering the questions and right. therefore doesn't really get that interesting. Like Ash Barty, right. who just re retired the world number one tennis player. She's just like not talkative and she doesn't build herself up. And so unfortunately, when I was interviewing her, I, I was like, yeah, so tell me about like, how do you prepare for big matches? And she was like, yeah, I don't, I don't really get that psyched about it. I just kind of do my thing. Which, you know, after four times, four, the four, the kind of, that, that kind of answers for four different questions. It's like, yeah, okay, what am I going to write about her? She didn't really <laughs> right, give, right. give me that much because she doesn't want to brag about her. That's where your creativity has to come out when you yeah, go back exactly. and edit. So yeah. um, to give you a, a rock star um, example, I got to interview Morrissey, you know, the Morrissey. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, I, I was asking him all these questions. I wasn't being pretentious. I was just asking him, like, so what's it like for this? Or you've made some sports references. I kind of picked out a few they're pretty veiled, but if you're listening, like, you know, like the name was one of his albums a year arsenal. So I didn't know if there was some like football strain there. Right. And he kind of didn't answer the question. So the article became about that. I think I labeled in the first paragraph, you know, Stephen Patrick Morrissey is, is a little bit of an international man of mystery. And I talked about what he was doing. And then uh, there was a rumor that he, he was going to buy or new people at the, the English football club, Millwall FC. And he, I asked him about that. I was like, so are you a Millwall fan? Because people think you're from Man you're from Manchester. You must be a Manchester United fan. I wanted to get into all that and he wouldn't get into it, but he gave me some answers that were like, well, you know, I'm not going to answer your question, but. Yeah, yeah. It, it allows you to go off in a couple of the directions and branch out. And I think that's the the creative skill that you have. And my my uh, previous interview that I did with a musician, I wasn't even planning this. And I just asked them a simple question about like what his life was like growing up and what his you know, yeah. parents and siblings were like. And he ended up telling me that uh, he's first generation in the U.S., that his grandparents were both prisoners at Auschwitz. So immediately oh. I dove into that and we went off on this tangent but it was one of the most interesting, I think, interviews that I've done in a long time where, um, you know, he was willing enough to share some of that experience with me. But he told me all about how they met in Auschwitz and stuck together. And, you know, we were talking about his album and his music and everything like that. You know, that's one of the things and I'm sure you can attest to this, too, Andy, you do a great job of it. Just this is one of the major things I love about, you know, doing these interviews. Right. As you get you, you, you can sometimes take an, another branch and go another direction and learn a lot more as part of my podcast. I'm also. Um, dedicated to providing tools and resources to my listeners to really help add value to them because I've gotten a lot of value from other podcasters. And these are things like, you know, how to develop a podcast on their own. Um, you know, some people have come to me and asked me some of those questions, you know, when the time is right. Also, people have asked me like, Greg, what, what have you done to monetize it? Um, I have some avenues and some ideas and some strategies that I've taken if you don't mind sharing, like what have been some of your strategies if you've thought about monetizing your podcasts? Because it's really great. I mean, I was listening to it a bunch. Have you taken any kind of approach to that yet? Or is that something down the road in the future? Or is it really more just for fun right now? 
I mean, not to disappoint you, but I'm not really that into the, like, I don't have a lot of listeners to this podcast. It's more just when I've gotten some really good interview material from somebody who's a top flight athlete, who's interesting, like Lindsey Vaughn, or, I mean, of course I got Tom Brady for about 10 or 12 minutes and the sound was good and we had a good conversation. So I'm not, I'm not going to not brag about that. Um, But yeah, I'm actually kind of put the podcast on pause just because it's not really like, I don't, I don't like editing. I never monetize. I never, I never plan to. It's just like, (laughs) yeah, there's been a couple of times I've had some really, I I actually put together 31 episodes. It doesn't even seem like it's been that much, but there's been a lot of good interviews that I have wanted to share to share some of those. I mean, sometimes you got to make those decisions. But for me, it was just more like sharing some of the work that I've done. Yeah. And also, you know, maybe trying to put together something that sounds professional, professional grade yeah. to see if I could do that. And that's about all it was with me. I don't expect to be like picked up by some major network. And I've, I, it's not really my forte. I mean, alongside me finishing up and you know, going through crazy hours to edit my book, 90 Days in the 90s. And it was just, I want to say like I needed a diversion from that. But it was one other thing to work on that felt... Um, yeah productive at the time, but it's, you know, it's not really my, my main thing. I hear you. You got to prioritize for sure. So I've, I've in the past, I've had to hire people to do some of my editing, but you also have another kind of a, another day, day gig, if I call it that you're working. I was looking at your LinkedIn profile, working adjunct um, faculty for a local university and you're coaching undergraduate college students on communication studies, like digital marketing and things like that. I'm just just teaching classes on digital marketing, social media. So a lot of it is, I mean, a lot of it strangely is like these 20, 21, 22 year old kids and like me saying okay so before you had all these devices in your hand you know let's talk about underwater cables and how like we used to use fax machines to communicate in the late 80s and i I do try to draw contrasts i think it's interesting to understand the history of communication at least contemporary history of communication so yeah it's social media um digital marketing Uh, one question we keep coming up with is like this is i I think this is funny that it keeps coming up because you assume that the kids know everything about technology, but it's like, yeah, I was in front of the, uh, the Nike store. I was just looking at these pair of shoes in the window and then I, you know, I get on the bus and I'm picking my phone and there, those shoes are on my phone, you know, <laughs> yeah. Facebook on an ad. I'm like, well, okay. So I'm no computer scientist, but you know, we talk about things like this. Like sure. you, had your, you had your phone it had the GPS was on, you were logged into Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok your gmail and probably a couple other sites that you didn't log out of all at the same time right it knows that you're standing from the nike store and i, I don't know that if there was uh you know like a, a sensor in the middle of the, the oh, parachute you're it looking at but it's one of the things that the nike store is promoting and you stood there for three and a half minutes so yeah you know and also like everything you post on your facebook account is is orange or yellow so and you look yep. at a pair of orange shoes so yep. yeah there's you know, some AI that goes on that knows that maybe you're interested in that and they're going to put it up in your social media because where else would you buy it, you know, click right. on it. So right. I've been doing that just this calendar year and it's it's fun. It's a good, consistent gig that kind of, you know, also kind of balances out the, you know, the, the journalism side of what I do, I guess. I read as well that part of what you do, uh, teach them about how companies and publishers gain and reach consumers in the digital world. And so that's a great segue into your book. So you've mentioned it before. I mentioned it at the top of the, 
uh, at the podcast that, um, you know, you recently wrote a book called 90 Days in the 90s, which you published on June 1st. So not mm -hmm. that long ago. You can get the book now at andyfry.com. Dude, I read your book and it definitely took me back in time. So you already gave kind of a quick synopsis. Story begins present day. Darby's the main character. She breaks up with her boyfriend. I love the fact that you put in there, you know, uh, Alan, who likes pop music, uh, leaves her job on Wall Street. I, I just immediately, like in the first chapter, I'm like, oh my God, even though this is about a female, I'm having a, 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 a connection to this. I had a, although I didn't work uh, actually on Wall Street, my very first job after bartending when I got out of college was uh, was for a brokerage firm. Uh, and then I got out and kind of moved back, uh, moved back home after a little while. So she moves back to Chicago um, because like you said, she inherits her uncle's record store after he passes away. Um, and she just, she, again, without ruining too much, she develops relationships with supporting characters. And, and I would argue also that the record store itself, Revolver Records, you could argue is also a character in the, in yeah. the book. I think there's certainly something to be said about that. But just in the first chapter, Andy mentions of Iron Maiden t-shirts, the argument between two employees about whether the Clash was a, a legit punk band, the ticket stub from the, from the band Dreaded Letters, uh, yeah. Great name, by the way. That's a, a fictional name. I was trying to look them up. Yes, totally. It was a, okay. Okay. That's what I thought. Oh but then I was like, am I missing something here? Darby going through her old boxes and wondering where her Lollapalooza t-shirt was. I can remember counting down the days in the early 90s to the Lollapalooza festivals. And I had some of my most memorable concert experiences, at least, uh, you know, Lollapalooza 1, 2, like 91, 92, 93, and 94. Wow. Um, and I was able to paint a perfect picture, man, of the characters and just really, really relate to these encounters and conversations because I've had those same encounters with my friends like over yeah. 700 times. So um, Andy also gives a great mention of life in the 90s or uh, I'm quoting you, the state of the world under Bill Clinton and Jerry Seinfeld. I, I love that too. Seinfeld was and still is like one of my all-time idols. If you listen to this podcast enough, my podcast, you'll know Seinfeld is definitely one of my heroes, but Andy's book makes other great references to the first Smashing Pumpkins album, Gish, mm -hmm. which is my favorite album.
like page after page after page, it was hitting me. So for for the listeners of this podcast, if you get some of those feelings from listening to some of my episodes, you're gonna really, you're gonna dig this book. Another deep cut that you had, Andy, was a band called Ned's Atomic Dustbin, which when I found their album, and I'm blanking on it, I think it was just... Uh, it had the song Kill Your Television on it. I'll never forget that. And I thought I was the only one on the planet that knew about that band. I remember feeling so special, so cool, uh, because kids, you know, kids at school would be like, what is this band? Who are they? Other great quotes in there by uh, your supporting character, Spacey, when she says, the world needs less Wall Street and more record stores. You do a great job in your book just diagramming each character, each conversation, and, and painting the picture, which I think is something that not all authors can really do well. Really, even before the characters have any dialogue, Andy, you're you're giving the reader a description of the environment, helping them paint the picture in their head, and then yeah. giving you their conversation is almost like you're watching it live, like it's up in the air in front of you. Now, I did not take any uh, uh, any libations or sedatives when I read your book. I wanted, so this might sound like I did, but I, this is really coming straight from me. And you had some other great mentions too, like wet napkin shrapnel, which I was like, that's a perfect name for when, when you spill something on yourself and you take a wet napkin and you try to rub it off that way. And it, it never works. Uh, and then you just have this stuff all over your leg. And then you titled it wet napkin shrapnel, which I just, I think your imagination is contagious. And well, that, that would be really a great band, by the way. I didn't, I didn't think about that one. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you want me to talk about it, it was, um, I, so one thing that I've, I've done in the past is um, I've taken improv classes, which is very Chicago, by the way. Yeah. Um, recently up until the pandemic, I was with a, a group and we're still kind of trying to figure it out called the, the disappointments, it's basically me and a bunch of millennials. And uh, we all have the same sort of weird sense of humor. But so one thing you, you learn two things when you're taking improv classes, especially if you took about second city or, or IO, which um, is, is, was an institution in Chicago. Sure. It's yeah. um, first you, first thing you relating to dialogue, you learn to basically the first things you do is to break bad habits. You're in a scene which you don't want when you're eventually on stage, if you get that chance, is to be like, what are we doing? Who are you? Who am I? Um, it can be something like, 
dad, I ran over the fence again with the tractor. So immediately, the second part of this is that you know exactly what's going on. Three things you want to know in the beginning of the scene is name, location, relationship. Now we know what we are. We have a scene, we have a basis for a scene with a relationship and some sort of conflict, which is minimal, but I just ran over the fence with the tractor, which I've actually done in my real life. I'm not going to talk <laughs> about it. So that is, I, I think I learned, I never took like writing courses in college. I don't have an MFA. I never really done, have done the sort of, It's kind of, I guess I like to like it and be like, I try to be like the the punk musician who never learned to read music. Like you learn, sure. if you're committed to something, you learn by osmosis or by taking notes and cues from other people that you admire creatively. So I think all the courses I took at improv over the years, kind of stopping and going back and redoing it, I learned how to write at least my dialogue and make it very relatable and realistic. I definitely wanted my dialogue to be realistic. So uh, I took some notes from my improv, uh, time in improv, just trying to figure that out. And I think being, given that I have, I have a love for music, I wanted to make that relatable too, not just name drop a bunch of bands. But I've kind of like you're saying, I've had a conversation with people about, you know, what bands are legit and who's authentic and it's all subjective. But uh, to give you an example, I remember, so the CNN did the, these series, like they did the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. Yes, fantastic uh, it, it completely pissed me off that when they did the music episode of the 70s, number one, they didn't even mention the Sex Pistols, not even a, a photo or a mention of the Sex Pistols, which I don't know how you get away with music in the 70s and talking about punk. And there was some um, newspaper no. person talking head who was like, yeah, punk, uh, punk was a big thing and the clash was the best of the bunch, which I think is debatable. But if you're not going to mention the Sex Pistols, why are we talking about the clash if we're exactly. talking about punk rock? Come on. Exactly. So uh, I kind of that kind of annoyed me and bothered me in my mind. I kind of pictured two characters in the record store, like one wants to be more punk than the other. One's kind of a metalhead. And, you know, I kind of I, I like the clash, but I do kind of think that they're the band that if you know nothing about punk, you don't listen to punk music. And you want to try to jump into a conversation about punk rock, you'd be like, "Oh yeah, I like the and Clash." You say the Clash, yeah. right? Exactly. Like, yeah. Or you say, "No offense for those out there," but you know, you say Green Day or something like that. Yeah. So, no, I'm with you. I, I did one of my first uh, reviews that I did was on Nevermind the Bollocks, which is you know, for those who don't know, the fame, the really the only. Ground um, for uh, punk. Yeah. Exactly. absolutely right. I remember where I was when I asked a friend's older sibling. So we were talking about older siblings earlier and influences. I remember 
you know, yeah. asking asking one of my friend's older brothers, you know, talk to me about punk, and he was like, well, when we go to the record store today, I, I'll I'll buy you this album, and it was never mind the Bullocks, and that that you know changed my listening experience forever for mm -hmm. sure. So I'm I'm with you, but I love those conversations, and I could arguably read on about those for for you know page after page before you know you're really actually getting to the point of what the characters are doing in the chapter i could see i could see this in a as a film as well your observation that you make in the book or your notation about um the years 1996 97 those were the two years uh, or time frame when important music of the 90s really changed i perked up boy bands britney spears um, you know, they would come next. And I remember this, like I remember going into the record store and all over the record store were these giant blow up billboards of Britney Spears. And yeah. she looked like she was 12 years old. And I was like, where did this come from? So, you know, Britney Spears, boy bands, right around that time frame, in addition to what many music historians would call new metal, you know, the new yeah. metal movement, the bands like Limp Bizkit. Now I was a heavy metal fan growing up. I, I got into the punk scene, but I also got into the jam band circuit as well. I, I branched out quite a bit. New metal, I, I, I want to have a deeper conversation one day because I just I just couldn't get into it. But I think that's really where music changed. And then it came to a grinding halt in the summer of 99 when the Woodstock 99 Fest tried to live yeah. up to the 69 and even the 94 festival versions. And boy, would they fail miserably. What made you pick those years and, and mm -hmm. what made you think about those? Well, I think that there's always continuum and there are, we think of history, maybe not in terms of years, but when things happen. So, I mean, the, the 80s kind of seemed to end politically, the landscape of the 80s seemed to end politically when the Berlin Wall came down in November of 89, I think. Right. Yep. So I think of it like I had this conversation a couple of weeks ago with, with somebody about music where I, in my mind, the 90s, the whole music scene that's important ended. I, I think, let me back to this. I, I, I keep finding like Instagram accounts are like 90s music and it's all the boy bands and, and Britney Spears. And that really came like at the very, very end. So let me quantify that by, that by saying, yeah, when, when alternative music started to wane, I, I kind of see that the conversation that I had was that the musically the nineties began with smells like teen spirit in terms of like yep. the flick of the switch. And there was before that I listened to the cure and Husker do, and um, there were eighties bands, but there's bands that kind of bleed into the nineties, like the Pixies and Ned's atomic dustman actually had their album come out before. Nevermind. But yeah, it was basically 1991, nevermind Nirvana. And I feel like musically the nineties ended. I put this up on my, my Instagram um, with this, the song by Len called um, Steal My Sunshine. Can't be 
which is a great kind of almost danceable pop song. It's got some heavy alternative hooks and some retro, like uh, even like disco hooks. Came, it was on the, the soundtrack for the movie Go, which I think was just kind of a yeah, great, love that crazy, oh crazy ass movie. Yeah. But yeah, so like, uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit is where it began. And then I feel like the 90s ended musically with Steal My Sunshine by Len. And it was just kind of more of a reference. feeling, kind of like that, that song helps you look back and kind of wrap up like all the great things that happened musically and culturally in the 90s. And then from there, it, you know, Jive Records went from distributing a Tribe Called Quest albums to like, putting out three, four, five, six boy bands. It was right. uh, it was the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and yep. 98 Degrees. And I yep. think there was another one with a clever name. And all of a sudden music was about that. And yep. we still loved music that was about songwriting and you know people who wrote their own songs and played their own, own instruments, whether your, your flavor was Soundgarden or Fastball or L7 or who knows what. That, that sort of was not of interest anymore. And now it was about uh, flicking the switch to something that was more commercially viable and more easily distributable and, you know, more pretty and I guess more palatable to the suburbs, perhaps. And, yeah. and so I saw those as cultural undercurrents as someone who maybe maybe we overemphasize the importance of music uh, on the day to day life of Americans. But I feel like that's where, you know, we we kind of knew our time was over as music fans in terms of, you know, like turning on the radio and hearing Pearl Jam. Uh, I mean, you can, you can hear Pearl Jam on a rock radio now, but, you know, turning on the radio. It's on the classic rock stations. Now, turning on the radio, and I remember listening to uh, Q101 and a band that I knew from the South called Dash Rip Rock, which is my favorite cow punk band, was on Q101 in the morning. I'm like, holy crap, is it? I think this sounds like, I didn't know the song at the time. I was like, this sounds like Dash Rip Rock. Like, why, right. why are they playing in Chicago land, you know, the right. biggest market? Cause I've seen them at bars and fraternity parties when I was a, a college freshman that it was, we went from that to, Oh crap. It's this, you know, boy, this backstreet boys yeah, song everywhere. Heard 15 times already today. We're kind of back to that where we were in the eighties. So exactly. I felt like we needed to pay homage to that and like recognize that as a thing and not just, I didn't just want to name drop bands and cool shows. And I wanted to re I, I think of nineties and the nineties is very much about, themes like generational rivalry and how music attaches to that. And then, yeah, the world under, you know, if we had to describe the world in the nineties to someone who was younger than us, like, cause I've had people like I've had improv friends who are younger than be like, what was it like to be alive in the nineties? I really love right. Nirvana. I'm like, right. you have no idea. It was like music was a bigger deal than you'd think. And it affected fashion and TV. And, you know, when you, when you, uh, the cool part, uh, not to diverge here, but when, the shows that I wouldn't be caught dead seeing like 90210 are playing Letters to Cleo and they have a soundtrack out. Right, right. Music, I'm like, finally legit music has made it. People who write songs are being taken seriously now, whether they're happy and poppy or depressed and angry because the, you know, the, the D bags on a 90210 are like going to see. I remember there's an episode where that I just was in the room when my roommate who loved 90210 was watching yeah. I want, yeah. I want him to leave the apartment so he could turn this off. And the, the kids, the 90210 characters are at a bar watching Flaming Lips. And I'm like, nice. I could have thought, you know, my first thing was like, is Flaming Lips selling out? No, they're just getting paid, you know, 50 grand to be on the show with people they would, you know, 
that aren't their fans, that's the way it is that the good music has taken over. You're right. It was. Yeah. It was everywhere. Wow. And that was part of the popular culture, too. You're absolutely right, man. You hit the nail on the head, you know, with true, real songwriting. And and that stuff was everywhere. So, yeah, you could call it pop. But when you go back and just Google like the Billboard Top 100 charts from, you know, 1996 and just look at the difference. You already like hit the nail and answered my what was going to be my next question is like, is there any narrative or message that you're trying to convey to the reader in your book, like a, a lesson? Or are you like me just, you know, do you just enjoy creating a great story about taking a walk down memory lane? And one of the so one of the movies that was most enjoyable in the 90s, which I think is now is is it's either a classic or a cult classic is Days Confused. Yep. So uh, it's funny, you brought up before, I wanted to bring it up that uh, whether you grew up in a bad neighborhood or a bad family situation, or maybe like like you and I, we had relatively you know stable families. Um, Linklater always talked in the, early in his career about the teen rebellion continuum and that totally. he, he kind of made this point that if you go to Central Africa and you meet teenagers there, that there's, you know, being cool is not just an American thing. That's something that I think uh, has always existed with people growing up and that they want to rebel. One thing, I, the thing that I think everybody who's a Gen Xer or anybody who just appreciates stays confused and movies like is that, yeah, there is a plot, but I mean, most of the movie, you're just kind of hanging out with these people exactly. over the course of a day. There's a lot of great movies. Pulp Fiction is another one where the whole movie takes place in just one, one calendar day. day. Yep, yep. So uh, I didn't go that route, um, but I wanted people to be able to, you know, there had to be enough of a plot that you could follow it. I want every chapter to be like, there's a new place. She, she re, you know, she in Darby goes, uh, the undercurrent of the story is that she comes back to Chicago after leaving and kind of like losing touch with her best friends and leaving all these relationships behind. And she re arrives thanks to the gray line, which is a time travel train, you know, part of the, I guess maybe the CTA gray line here or CTA, uh, uh transit system. The gray line is this thing that maybe exists, maybe doesn't. You know, urban legends were kind of a thing in the 90s that she takes it back to the 90s. And the first thing she's doing is like trying to revisit the situation with her old girlfriend she brought up, broke up with, with uh, her best friend who she hasn't seen. And they don't know that she's gone because she re-arrives in the 1996 on the day that she left. That's sort of how I deal with the time travel question. But a lot of it is subsequent to that is, you know, I think in time travel, we there's this pretense and, and back, back to the future did it. And Peggy Sue got, got married, all these great eighties yeah. travel movies. We grew up with always made the person kind of address. I need to solve this thing. Right. And there's a little bit of that, but it's more of a nineties thing to kind of just roll with it and not necessarily be lazy or passive, but to kind of soak up your surroundings and see how it either changes you. And in addition to that, there's also a grass is greener mentality that she's always had that she's dealing with. And, you know, you, I guess the readers can find out whether whether she keeps doing the grass is greener thing or, you know, eventually she finds out that what she has maybe wasn't that bad. And that's sort of her coexisting in the 90s and this great music scene, getting caught up with the friends again, kind of reliving the great times, but also realizing that just because we think of the 90s as awesome and fun and perfect, it wasn't perfect. Like I got to go to see great concerts and did fun things. But I also forget sometimes that I was, you know, rubbing nickels together and totally eating left, you know, three day old leftovers because totally. I didn't totally. have any money. Like I yeah. was paying rent yeah. and trying to figure out how to how to wash my clothes at the end of the day. I was serving I was serving uh, chickens at uh, Boston Market, which at the time was Boston Chicken, and I'd have to every five minutes reach into this 
ridiculously hot oven to pull these full chickens out, these whole chickens. And for years I had these burn marks on my, all up and down my arms cause I'd be reaching in. So yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, at the time in, in Massachusetts, uh, a minimum wage was 475 an hour something like that so it's it's mind-boggling to see but you're absolutely right like rubbing nickels together i, I couldn't you couldn't have said it any better i i wanted to ask i'm curious i i frequently by mostly by my wife but also by some of my friends i get accused of quote living in the past yeah. um <laughs> do, do any of your friends or family ever give you a hard time about that like do you consider someone like me who kind of revels a lot in the past and maybe a little concerned about the future in terms of the direction that you know society's going i think i get more instead of that i get like i can't believe you remember that that seems so <laughs> to remember this fact that right uh, i nice. mean with, with the book i had to kind of research some things i knew sure you know because i moved to chicago in 94 and i knew that the nirvana had played here when they weren't super famous so i had to research it and count the days on a calendar that to figure out that nirvana's first show in chicago at metro in October 1991 was 33 days after the release of Smells Like Teen Spirit. Wow. That they actually were playing at Metro. And, you know, Nirvana was kind of like, I guess, like the Beatles in that they were, kind of spent more time in the studio. They were, they didn't go do what Guns N' Roses did and start playing Giant Stadium. And maybe that just wasn't totally. their, how they were feeling. But right. that there was a time where, you know, you had tickets to see that that pretty new band Nirvana that you know, was going to be big or was starting to get big and that, you know, I wasn't present for that. So I have Darby, you know, uh, not to spoil too much of the book, but when she goes back to 96, she gets her old job as a music writer back. Right. She kind of forgets how much she liked it and the money wasn't really the object. So of course, yeah, when her editor asks her, you know, what are you writing this month? Well, she decides that maybe she might go back on the time travel train and go see Nirvana's first show. And one baby two. becomes something that you know maybe is a pastime like how many more places can she go in the past without kind of dealing with her present and then her new present in 1996 when she's kind of gone back there to fix some things and to to see you know how she could make her life her quality of life better she keeps diving into music and maybe that's 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 the, one of the themes about it she keeps diving into music as a coping mechanism which i think that's the thing i don't i don't get accused of living in the past but uh, I get people who are kind of fascinated that at my age, you know, that I'm still interested in using music as, I don't know, means to, to an end to get to happiness. And so I, I think that's probably one of the purposes of music that used constructively, 
yeah, you can dive in for a little while, go back to 1978 or 1961 or whatever, and enjoy that time period. That's one of the great things about music is that, you know, you get to totally. as much as you can experience a different uh, pace and different place in the time space continuum, at least for a little while. Yeah. Hey there, guys. Quick, quick break to talk to you about an online course you can benefit from. This is really exciting for me for the albumreview.net podcast is sponsored by Treehouse. Are you ready to launch your new career in coding? Treehouse has one of the best and most affordable online classrooms for you. At Treehouse, we've rethought the learning process and built a proven system to get you the skills and knowledge you need to achieve your goals. When you're done with a course, you haven't just watched a video, you've learned, practiced, and absorbed a concept. Or choose to build a portfolio, create a network, and land your dream job with our bootcamp style tech degree program. Land a dev job this year. Whatever your goal, we'll get you there. Get 50% off your first month as a podcast listener through our special discount link, teamtreehouse.com forward slash signup underscore code forward slash podcorn courses. Again, that's teamtreehouse.com forward slash signup underscore code forward slash podcorn courses. And I'll also put this link in the show notes. important thing to mention the listeners is I don't really even think that you have to really have had a history with any of these bands or these groups or really remember a lot of these things because Andy writes such a good story and has such good good characters that you know the, the lesson and what they do I think you could probably help paint your own picture so maybe you didn't enjoy listening to XYZ band and you know Darby loves this band and this you know Dreaded Letters seems to be her favorite band uh, yeah. that she remembers but I, I, I think what, what was genius about you putting that, maybe putting that name in there was because it allows the reader to maybe substitute or put in their own experience. So maybe they were big fans of, I don't know, I'm just making stuff up, Michael Jackson. And so they have, you know, they remember going back in time. So my point, you don't necessarily have to like the, the different bands or t-shirts or albums or singers or guitar players that Andy mentions in this book, 90 Days in the 90s. You can have your own experience, but really also enjoy what the characters are thinking. And I think personally, there is a little bit of a, of a, a lesson there at the end, which I won't spoil. You're going to have to read to find out more. So, but just really, really well written, man. So, um, absolutely. You know, you, you kind of, we've talked a lot about music of the nineties. What are some of your most memorable concert experiences from the nineties? You've already mentioned a few, but I'm curious to hear if you've got any others. Well, so actually one of the first shows I saw in the fall of 94 was Ned's Atomic Dustman. They played the Vic. I'd never seen him. I've only seen him once. And uh, one of my good friends uh, named Brian, who actually is, he's sort of, 
loosely the model for the smart ass character named Rye Guy. Um, you know, uh, he likes all kinds of music. I kind of make fun of him for his like front 242 techno thing. Mm-hmm. But um, I think he was talking about coming back. He's from Chicago. We went to college in Ohio. Uh, and, you know, we, I, I don't even know how I got a hold because we didn't have cell phones. I didn't text him. It, it seems like in my mind, I would have texted him now and be like, hey, Ned's Atomic Dustman's coming on whatever it was, like, you right. know, September 24th. Probably called him and left him a message on his, you know. I guess I had to, yeah. I must have called him on the phone and left a message like, hey, Ned's, I got two tickets. Right. Do you want to take my other ticket? And he came up and made it a, a visit to home that weekend. He was in Park Ridge, just outside the city. And I remember, like, I I think I put the tickets, must have been on will call, because I remember paying in cash when we got there. He's like, you paid that much for Ned's Atomic Dustman tickets? And I said, whatever the amount was, I don't remember what it was. I was like, well, I've never seen him. I want to see them. We're going to have a good time tonight. And uh, yeah. it was great. I mean, there was another concert. I think he was also there with me for this one. We saw at the Vic Helmet, Orange uh, oh. Line Millimeter, and and Quicksand. And I remember, like, that was the concert where I'm a young adult in the city. I'm kind of into the city. I got my combat boots on, and I want to see if I'm kind of man enough to to get in the mosh pit and not not get injured and not be scared away. Right. it's kind of like weird like i went for the band because i loved helmet and they only put out a couple albums that were really spoke to me but yeah. uh you know i kind of like that was my coming of age like i was man enough or, or i was rock and roll enough i saw some women in there too like we yeah. were tough enough to make it through the mosh pit and walk out without a limb it sounds stupid but that's that was like i wanted i was actually looking forward to that to see like a mosh pit and, you know oh it wasn't at cbgb's or, or maxwell's in New Jersey, it was like, you know, in the Midwest, but it was a pretty legit venue. And that was like a big deal to me. So uh, I also saw the very last, the very last Grateful Dead show, July 9th, 1995. Wow. Uh, Gary Garcia died exactly one month later. Yeah. Wasn't that, I, up in, uh, was that up in Vermont? No, no, it was at Soldier Field. It was at Soldier Field. Okay. Wow. So I also went the day before. I went to this, my ticket, the ticket is the Sunday show, which was the last show he ever played. But I took kind of took it as like, okay, I'm not a deadhead. I'm going to kind of pay deference to the people who make this their lifestyle and kind of check it out and do my due diligence. And I remember going down the day before, walking around by myself. I had a, a dictaphone, which I put on record, stuck in my backpack. And just, I don't know, I wish I knew where this thing was. Because I remember recording like the most amazing sounds of like people talking and playing drugs and 
Right. You're playing drugs, playing drums. Yeah. And someone being like, kind bud, you know. Right, whatever, right, right. Yeah. Like, Money for these... your extra, need a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to get yeah. to Albany to the next show. Yeah. I think right, right, I, right. I think that actually, I think it started in Albany. It came to Chicago. It was the the last show of the first leg, and they were taking a, a like a two month or six week break. And they're, and they're going to pick up somewhere, maybe in like Colorado or Kansas. And Jerry Garcia Jerry died a month died. later. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to, you know, I feel like I, I wasn't really like, a legit member of the community to, to be able to tell that story to be like i went to the, my first show was the very last grateful dead show and i saw his last show i think that's an amazing story man i mean but, you know yeah i mean i experienced it almost like not like a tourist but like i felt like i was on a national geographic quest sort of a like a bit. journalist yeah. yeah yeah i mean you yeah, were... maybe maybe i was a, a sort of a journalist in that but you know those were very different shows i mean helmet has nothing to do with with the grateful dead and musically at all right but and then there's all different gradients in between. I mean, there's plenty of shows that I missed that I wish I like. I wish I'd saw seen those first, the first Nirvana, and I definitely could have seen the first Oasis show because that was at Metro in September '94. I was a huge and still am a huge Anglophile. I just I didn't have it on my radar because sure. we didn't have the internet back then. I would have right. had to pick up Melody Maker pretty early to to see that that this was the new band that was a big deal in britain and but i mean one thing that people who choose to pick up my book and read it will find that darby experiences those things yeah she able, is able to time travel and goes back to some of these legendary shows which is kind of what she wanted to do or what a lot of music fans who may be interested in ideas in the 90s would do like you, we would ask ourselves what would we go see what bands would we go see what would we want to go experience she gets to dabble in all of that, which is the cool part about time travel. It, it doesn't exist, but she gets to try that on for size and experience this for us. So I hope that that is something that readers of the book or anybody's intrigued by the idea of the book would enjoy that someone, you know, someone gets to do that kind of thing that we would have done if we had the, the chance to do so. It's the perfect daydream. I mean, I've had that daydream a hundred million times. So, and it's just, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, to, uh, I had a very similar experience to you as the Grateful Dead, although I didn't go to their last show. I wasn't really, uh, this was before I was a fan and a friend of mine, again, had an older sibling said, we're all going to go. We got an extra ticket for you. You're coming with us. I remember getting off the T we call it, you know, you guys call it the L we call it the T here, yeah. getting off the T in Boston, walking down the steps and the entire Causeway Street, which is where the Boston, the old Boston Garden was housed, yeah. was you couldn't even see the street. You couldn't see the ground. It was just people everywhere. So you're stepping over. Um, now, everyone was incredibly cordial and, and nice, a little dirty, but um, I, I did the same thing, Andy. I, I had to go and check this out. I knew one song, maybe two, Touch of Grey, which was all over MTV. So I definitely kept my mouth shut. I didn't want anyone to know that I really didn't know much about them. But uh, I'm so glad I went. It ended up kicking off you know, more of a, a, an interest in the band. And then as I got through high school and college, uh, love them even more. But that experience was just incredible because I was like, I've got to go to one of these. Who knows yeah. how long they're going to be around for. And then I had a mosh pit um, experience similar to yours, although I got my butt rearranged. I, I had, uh, I also picked up a pair of combat boots, which I used to rock regularly on the weekends. I went to an all boys uh, private school. And so I had to wear a shirt and tie. Uh, right. Of course, on the weekends, 
uh, peeled all that off and I had, you know, Metallica and Aerosmith shirts walking around, you know, Harvard Square, Cambridge, Boston, um, going from record store to record store. And I managed to get tickets to a Primus concert, which I'm aware uh, is definitely an acquired taste. But I guess you're about a Primus show. Well, I can tell you if you being want. A, being a, I, I'm a, you know, a, I'm a bass player myself. So Les Claypool, Getty Lee, those were guys that I looked up to growing up. But my first for, foray, forte, foray into a, a, uh, uh, into a mosh pit and within three seconds my combat boots came off uh, and I was only able to find one of them and so I had to go home that night in the rain with one boot and then um, had a, uh, an experience not long ago in 2017 I think it was when Metallica uh, did another tour and I got to see them at Gillette Stadium where the Patriots play and I remember I don't know what came over me but I was like you know what I'm having such a good time. I'm going to dive back in. So I'm in, I'm in my 40s now, and I'm going into this mosh pit. Within two seconds, I get nailed by this guy about 16 times my size. What happens? Both my shoes fall off. So the next thing I remember is this guy coming up to me, the guy who hit me, coming up to me, helping me up with my shoes in his hands going, here you go, brother, you okay? And I got back over to where my friends were standing and I was laughing and they said, Greg, you just got nailed. Why are you laughing? You, you look like you're hurt. And I said, this is what I love about these kinds of shows is this is yeah. just an aggression thing. Nobody's out here to really kill anybody. Okay. At least that was my experience. So bring back a lot of great memories there telling those two stories as well, Andy, but I had to add those two in. Yeah, I got to see Fugazi once, a uh, characteristic of Fugazi. This is in May, 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 I think of 98. Yep. They played at the Congress Theater, which is open only on occasion. Six dollars, typical Fugazi type of you know right, right. thing. Um, the acoustics of the, of the theater were great. I mean, there's paint falling off the ceiling, but there's no obviously no lights and no like dancing girls or anything like that with Fugazi. Right. But yeah, six dollars no, to see not. that great band. It, it was terrific. And I remember another show actually was in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. When I was in college, we used to go to Bogarts. Saw Bad Brains there. Mm. I think I was, I, it was a, a band, kind of a funk white guys playing funk kind of like they're sort of like the chili peppers called royal crescent mob um i was crowd surfing riding the crowd and the crowd kind of ended and i basically got dropped on my head <laughs> literally stood up and for the rest of the concert I, I felt like i was fine but like the left half of my field of vision was completely blurry and the right was fine and uh, you know on the way home in the car i slept which i don't think you're supposed to do no after. you're definitely not after a concussion. I, I mean we didn't know that in the 90s but uh, i kind of use that as the basis for one of the chapters where darby uh, ends up at a show and before she knows it you know that's right she's kind of working out of her, yeah. her her being like a stiff and an uptight person and she's back in the 90s and kind of still mentally present in the 2020s and then before she knows it, she's like crowd surfing and it doesn't really go right so i i use certain uh incidents in, from my own life, things that happened at concerts or experiences maybe that I was uh, part of that, you know, sort of inform different things in the book that happened that I, I suppose are, are very 90s. I try not to make it too like stereotypical, uh, like she doesn't go to Lollapalooza, but obviously Lollapalooza was a thing. It was in every city. It wasn't just yep. in Chicago. Right. Like in that was those were the days when it was a big tour. It was it was yeah. probably the biggest tour of the summer. Yeah, it was a big deal so, to sure. go to that. So. Uh, obviously, it's, it was in the lexicon of the 90s, there, and that is sort of the lexicon of the book. But I try to let her uh, and her friends kind of interact as they would in Chicago. And, you know, there's some Midwestern things that happen in, in, in the book that, you know, I kind of poke fun of the Midwest. And it has its own little shtick that, yeah, maybe got to spend some time here to kind of know about. But 
yeah, it was it was really fun writing the book because I if for me it would be fun to kind of re-experience it those years, not because my life isn't great now, but just because, you know, I would like to go back. Yeah, if I could go back for a weekend, that'd be great. Just to time travel in the 90s, go back for a weekend, you know, enjoy the experience, part of your butt off, maybe see some shows. That might be enough for for, for the both of us, I suppose. To, for for the listeners out there that visit albumreview.net on a regular basis, I'm I'm optimistic you, you do so for a reason that you know, my words, my reviews, my interviews touch a special place in your heart and bring back great memories. That's really what I'm all about. And so trust me, if you've if you've enjoyed even a, a smidge of albumreview.net up to now, you guys are really going to enjoy Andy Fry's book, 90 Days in the 90s. It's it's right up my alley. It's right up our alley. So you can you can get a copy of Andy's book by going to albumreview.net. Also, you can go to andyfry.com. That's A-N-D-Y-F-R-Y-E.com. And you can also find it on Amazon. But I think if you go to Andy Fry, Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, if you go to andyfry.com, then it'll, uh, I think... Um, uh, you have the uh, Amazon yeah. link up there as well. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. actually, and, and um, the actual website for the book is 90 days in the nineties.com. I mean, you go to my, my personal website, it'll just take another, uh, you'll, you'll click and be redirected 90 days in the nineties.com with uh, 90 in numbers in both. And if you go, I mean, if you go direct for me, I'll sign a copy and send you some swag if you want, you know, awesome. just to grab it on Amazon. Cause that's your thing. Obviously you can point and click there and get it delivered in a couple of days too. Um, ends up being priced about the same with shipping and all that, but well, there's uh, you know, the right artist there. the artist gets a little bit more of a cut if you get a direct direct from me. But yeah, there you go. Yeah, so go straight to go straight to ninety days in the ninety dot ninety days in the nineties dot com. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Anything that I forgot about? This has been a great conversation, and I could go on for hours with you, man. I, I was thinking about, you know, uh, some other things here, but I just, I, I, I've had just such a great time, but is there anything else that you'd like to add or that I might've missed? Yeah. I don't know if you have any listeners in Milwaukee, but, um, on September 8th, which I think is a Thursday, I'm doing this thing at the lion's tooth, which is kind of like a rock and roll comic book bookstore. Uh, my, my author friend, Jeff Winkowski wrote a book called time of your life, which is about the Milwaukee punk scene in the late eighties and early nineties. So we're teaming up. We're just kind of, cool. I don't even know if we're, we're going to read from our book. We're just going to talk about like nineties punk and all that stuff. And um, it's a, a ben- it's called books, not bombs. It's a, a benefit for uh, Midwest books to prisoner. So it's obviously all ages show no admission, uh, bring a book if you can, so that you can get have a prisoner in the Midwest, read a book. All right. So you said September, September 9th, Milwaukee, it, September, September 8th, 8th, Milwaukee 8th. books, not bombs at lion's tooth. There you go. If you're in the Milwaukee area, or even if you're in the Chicago area, it's not that long of a drive. So yeah. check it out. So, uh, Andy, this has been awesome, man. I've had such a great time. I've loved your book. Uh, I want to con- continue, you know, talking about it and marketing it on other podcasts as well with your permission. I just, I think it's yeah. great. And like I said, even if you weren't a fan of music in the nineties, which I'd be shocked if you weren't, but I think you can still really, really, really dig this story. It's just very inventive and creative. Thanks again for joining me, man. And I really, I really had a good time. Thanks. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to the albumreview.net podcast. I hope you enjoyed this interview with sports writer, music writer, and book author Andy Fry. Once again, you can find a copy of Andy's book by going to albumreview.net and clicking on the bookstore tab. You can also find it at andyfry.com. That's A-N-D-Y-F-R-Y-E. Dot com. Also, check out Andy's podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts, uh, the Andy Fry Podcast. 
And remember, if you're interested in any of the books or albums I've discussed in this episode or previous episodes, go to albumreview.net and pick up a copy of your own. Listen to all my podcast album reviews at albumreview.net by clicking on, what is it? Obvious, the podcast tab, right? Yeah, I really wanted to throw you guys for a loop there. These can also be heard wherever podcasts are available. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can find it there. Please follow the show on your preferred platform so that you can get regular updates on new episodes. And also, if you guys would mi- wouldn't mind helping me just be so kind as to pop a quick review or rate the podcast. That helps me move the needle and get the word out there. As I mentioned in every episode, I do want to hear from you. Please email me your feedback, album review requests, and any questions you may have to gpotters at albumreview.net. That's G-P-O-T-T-E-R-S at albumreview.net. Lately, I've been asking people on my mailing list, what are some of their pains? And I don't mean like physical, but just like, what are certain things that they want more information about? Whether it be reviews or music information or product information, because I'm going in that direction as well. Um, If you'd like to get regular updates on reviews and interviews and product and music reviews, go to the homepage and join the mailing list. Stay tuned for updates on Instagram and Facebook. You can find me at albumreviewnet and just keep refreshing your podcast. Just read and listen. Well, I am in week five of recovery since I broke my leg. Healing is slow but steady. But this won't stop me from bringing you guys entertaining reviews morning, noon, and night. So thanks for listening. Have a good one. Take a trip down by the highway 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 Take a trip down by